Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is Chris McClung. Chris is the co-owner of Rogue Running based in Austin, Texas. He is the host of the Running Rogue podcast, which is my favorite podcast about running, as well as the co-host of the Clean Sport Collective podcast with Olympian Kara Goucher. I am thrilled to have Chris on my show today. He is the guru of my easy running journey, and we talk about pacing, easy running, race strategy, and so much more. You are going to learn amazing things from this episode. Chris, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to say right off the bat for every listener out there who has not yet listened to Chris's excellent podcast, the Running Rogue podcast, you need to go and subscribe to it right now. Well, maybe not right now. Listen to this episode (laughs) first and then go find it and subscribe. But Chris, I want to hear before we dive into our very exciting topic today about you as a runner, as a coach, tell us how you ended up where you are. Well, it's a long story, but I'll try to keep it brief. My running started at an early age as a soccer player. I grew up playing soccer. That was my primary sport growing up from age five until early college years. And for me, running was a part of that, even though I maybe didn't always realize it. Sometimes it was a punishment. And so I didn't necessarily have the best relationship with running by itself, but I was running all the time because I was on the soccer field and always had pretty good endurance, pretty good fitness, my dad was also a runner. He ran a marathon, his one and only marathon in the 80s. And I saw him train for that and prep for that. So so it planted a seed in my head that someday that might be something I would do, even though I, w- I didn't really participate in running by itself as an activity until college. And after I quit playing soccer, I needed a way to stay in shape. A friend of mine, my suite mate in college, actually had run cross country in high school and had gotten into doing road races in college, even though he wasn't training with a team anymore. And so he invited me out for some runs with him as he was prepping for a 10K in Houston on the road where I went to school. And that became my initiation into running by as an activity by itself, just following him around loops around our campus and ultimately doing my first 10K in my last year of college in 2000 in Houston, the Houston Rodeo Run. And I've been hooked ever since. (laughs) My first race was a 10K. My second race was a marathon. In terms of the coaching side, that actually came about because of injury. Ultimately, I have a stress fracture to thank for, or at least partially thank for why I am where I am today. But I was training for my first marathon in 2000 after I did that 10K earlier in the year, was going to do Chicago with my friend, got a stress fracture in training for that race in my tibia because I wasn't doing anything right. I was going too hard all the time. I was making all the classic rookie mistakes. And 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 I was probably too ambitious as well in that first race. Ended up getting a stress fracture that took me out of running for three months, which was really frustrating. 
And I was determined to never have that happen to me again. So I dove into every single running coaching book I could find at that time while I couldn't run so that I could coach myself to be smarter about it on the other side. And the journey has evolved significantly since then, but the rest is kind of history. That became my introduction into the idea of wanting to be a coach. So let me ask you, your first and second races, how many months or weeks apart were they? Well, they ended up being many months. I, I did that first race in February 20, or February 2000, was training for my first marathon the following October and October of 2000, but that's where I got injured. So I ended up having to take time off. It wasn't until the following year in October of 2001 that I was able to finish my first marathon. And so it ended up being a year and a half, essentially a little bit more than that between that first 10K and the first marathon because of the injury, sadly. Unfortunately, I feel that happens to a lot of new runners uh, and, and we don't have time to talk about some of the common mistakes that new runners make, but we are going to talk about a really cool topic today about the art and science of pacing. And I am very excited to talk about this topic with you because of your not only your personal experience as a runner and the things you've done since you started running, but the experience you have as a coach. Yes, I'm excited too. This is really important because pacing is a fairly complex topic. You think, oh, I'll just go out and I'll run this pace. And there is so much more to we, the concept, the topic of pacing. And that's why it is really an art and a science. So let's just start at the very basics, the very beginning. When we're talking about the concept of pacing, if you're telling an athlete, a runner to pace themselves, what are you asking them to do? Well, you're essentially asking them to run at a certain speed and try to run that speed consistently. So when we're talking about workouts, we often describe those workouts in the context of some sort of pace, some in, in the U.S. pace per mile that we're asking you to run in order to get the, the desired benefit from that workout. And so you'll hear people talking about running marathon pace or half marathon pace or 10K pace or 5K pace, which is essentially the speed that you can run for those distance races, which will get you a desired result from the workout. You might also hear say someone say, run easy pace, <laughs> which, which I think is often confounding because that can be very, very different depending on what you're trying to accomplish on a given day. And so it's it's just that speed you're trying to run in order to get a desired physiological benefit from the work that you're doing. We usually ask him, like you said, to run consistently at this pace. So a lot of runners, when they're trying to dial into a specific pace, they find that they have trouble staying at the correct pace range, you know, what plus or minus five seconds per mile. And they're running too fast and they slow down and they're, oh, I have to speed up. And so they're very, they're kind of all over the place and doing this little roller coaster of pacing. And while their average pace may end up being the pace they wanted to hit, that's very, very different when you come at it from a roller coaster versus a straight line. Right. Yeah. You want to, you want to try to be consistent and that is the challenge. And I think especially a challenge in a world where we have these devices that are purported to help us with pacing but can, because of their limitations, can also lead to us yo-yoing because we're, we're following the ups and downs of an algorithm on a watch instead of actually tuning into how our body feels and trying to be consistent associated with that. So that is one of the things I think is 
important to talk about and we'll get to later is just that relationship between the inputs from technology that you're getting and how you use those in the context of trying to hold a certain pace. So let's talk about the ultimate determiner, determinate, determination of pace is your effort because you might have a pace in your mind, a goal pace, a target pace. Oh, I'm going to run this pace and you go out and the effort that pace takes is a mismatch to how you expected it to feel. Because ultimately you may want to run a certain pace, but the effort required to sustain that pace may be beyond your ability to hold. And this is probably the most important point of this entire conversation, which is actually that effort is more important than pace. When we're telling you to run a certain pace, that is an, basically a metric that's giving you an idea for how to hone in on a certain effort. But the effort is actually what's most important. And there's a few different ways to calibrate around effort. There's how you feel. There's what the pace says on your watch. And there's heart rate, which is another way to measure effort. But regardless of how you're measuring it, what matters is how you feel and how you feel in relation to the physiological benefit you're trying to achieve. So when I tell an athlete to run a certain pace, it's just really a proxy for trying to get them into the right effort zone in order to achieve a physiological benefit. And the, and the reason why that distinction is important is because there are many things that can affect the relationship between effort and pace. One of the best examples is happening right now. We have heat waves across the country, and I live in Texas where it's hot and humid consistently, whether you're running morning or night in the summer. And heat and humidity have a dramatic impact on the pace that you can hold at a given effort. So, for example, if I tell someone to run marathon pace in the summer, that's going to be a different effort than if I tell them to run marathon pace in the wintertime because of the different conditions. Both of them might end up being the same effort while being run at different paces, and yet the benefit could still be the same because the effort is consistent. And so it's important to remember that, that pace isn't the end-all and be-all that we try to make it to be. What really matters is, is the underlying effort right and recognizing that that effort can change on a given day, given the conditions. And so sometimes you have to give yourself grace around pace in order to actually be at the right place from an effort standpoint. And in the summer, in, in our conditions here, I mean, it could be 20 to 30 seconds per mile different at similar efforts than you might see in winter conditions. And that is such an important point, not even with the heat wave, but just summer temperatures in general. And I've had so many questions about people wondering how running more slowly, quote unquote, more slowly in the summer is going to result in fall PRs and faster times in the fall. And saying, well, you know, I talk about effort zones and that sort of thing, but it's very seductive to look at your pace as the ultimate data point and becoming very emotionally attached to what that pace is telling you. People are really loath to let go of the pace that they want to run, even if it's not the pace they should be running. It's really hard, even for a veteran runner. I ran a workout on Tuesday and my coach, and it was hard and it didn't feel good. And the paces weren't what I wanted them to be. And 
at the end, I said, you know, either it's really hot and that affected me or I'm out of shape <laughs> because that's sort of what it felt like. And she very quickly corrected me and said, no, you're not out of shape. I know that's not true, but it is hot and humid. So you have to account for that. So even the veterans can can be lulled into that that thought process, as you describe. One analogy or, or at least comparison point I like to use in this conversation is that if you were to go to altitude, if you were to go run at 9,000 feet in Aspen or something, then you would feel the effect of altitude on your ability to run. And you would naturally say, hey, I'm running slower at altitude because there's less oxygen in the air. And therefore, that makes sense. I'm not going to beat myself up over running slow in Aspen versus running slow at sea level. But we don't give ourselves that same grace when it comes to heat and humidity. And yet it can have the same impact, sometimes even a greater impact, depending on the, the exact conditions you're talking about. And so we have to give ourselves that grace, set our ego aside, recognize that even at slower paces, we can still be getting the same effort level in order to have the physiological benefit to go chase those fall PRs when the weather does shift again. And I would like to add very windy conditions to that list of things that can affect your yes. effort. I've gotten a lot of questions about tips for running in the wind, and it's always going to be effort-based. Your wind adds resistance, and <laughs> resistance increases your effort. Full stop. Yes, and I hate wind. <laughs> That's my kryptonite. Kryptonite, but 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 there are other things too. I mean, it's not just heat, humidity, wind, altitude. It can also be the conditions of of yourself. I mean, how you slept the night before, your stress levels at work. There are other things that can affect your given effort level on a day. And so you have to recognize that and give yourself grace. And as long as you're running at the right effort level, then you're getting the physiological benefit you need, regardless of the pace that your watch is telling you. So let's talk about the technology and kind of the limits of technology a little bit, because as you very clearly said, it's not the truth. It's guiding you, but it's not going to be 100% accurate. If I look at my Garmin every quarter mile, you know, the odds of it being 100% accurate to my pace in that specific time are close to zero because it is lagging based on my location data pinged up to satellites and back down to the earth. There are a lot of other factors involved with the accuracy of our GPS watches. So it, it can guide us in the right direction, but it is not something we should be glued to every single step of the way. Absolutely not. And that's one of the challenges I see with the modern day runner. I, when I first started running 21 years ago, we didn't have GPS watches. I was using a Timex. I was lapping it to try to understand on a given interval how fast I was going. And so I had really no choice but to learn to run by effort and run by feel because that's the data I had. And then, of course, you know, through the years, we've had various iterations. I had the very first GPS watch would had some big pod I had to wear on my on my uh, arm on my bicep and and it was terribly inaccurate and really annoying I honestly only wore it a few times it was given to me as a gift and I promptly discarded it because I was not useful and I resisted the Garmin movement until they actually got watches that were reasonably sized because they used to have little biscuit or cake sized <laughs> bricks that you would wear on your wrist. And I just refused to go that route until they actually were wristwatch size. And so here I am. I have a Garmin. I use it. I love it. But you have to realize it's a tool. And yes, it's inaccurate inherently because of the limitations of it. 
and 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 it's only there to help inform but the most important thing is for you to learn how to feel and how the cues inside your body are telling you what effort you're at or what pace you're at and what i find is that when you become a slave to your watch then you stop listening to how you feel and then that's the real challenge with this kind of pace effort equation is is when you don't know those internal cues because you're focused on the only only on the external ones which your watch provides that becomes the challenge and so you have to if you really want to be on a journey to hone in on really being able to run a certain pace or effort you have to feel and listen to your body and you have to give yourself the space to do that you use the garmin or the the other gps watch you may have as a tool that helps inform that but you can't be overly reliant on it those runners that are looking at it every 10 to 15 seconds are the ones that are going to always struggle with this because you're always relying on that external data source instead of the internal ones which are going to tell you everything you need so before we talk about dialing into your perceived effort, perceived effort versus actual effort. Well, actually all effort is perceived effort because it is how you feel. Uh, we Let's talk a bit about the other proxy for effort that you mentioned, which is heart rate. Because I, you talk extensively, I think I may have learned from you the importance of taking those easy days really easy and learning to, hey, you can use your heart rate to help you keep you in those easy zones. Because when I was a new runner, classic mistakes, I would look back to how my data, all my runs were 170 plus beats per minute. You know, I was running at the time, probably what was equivalent to my future marathon pace on every single run. I was nowhere near in my actual easy zone. Shockingly, I got burnout, had to take some time off. But using your heart rate can be another useful guide towards putting you in the right effort zone, whether that's an easy zone, whether you're looking at something that's more of a lactate threshold, heart rate, or that sort of thing as well. Yes. Heart rate is another good data point, probably the better one than pace to use. The challenge with heart rate though, is that it is very individual. In order to use heart rate and to understand your heart rate zones, you really need to get a VO2 max test to actually get those zones. So you know where you should be for each given effort zone from a heart rate standpoint. There are some rules of thumb though that you can use that I think are helpful. And Dr. Phil Maffetone is a, is a big proponent of heart rate based training. If you go to his website, there's a lot of good blogs about training by heart rate. But one good rule of thumb is if you take 180 and subtract your age. So for me, that's I'm 41. So 180 minus my age is 139. That is a good threshold for the difference between easy and working hard. So the analogy I like to use in this whole conversation about going easy enough is that, and I talked about it this week on my main podcast, if you're, you're trying to ultimately do two things, and if I use a car analogy for a second, when you're running easy, you're building the size of your engine, you're adding cylinders to the engine. When you're running faster, you're fine tuning the engine. And ultimately, we want a really big engine more than we want a small engine that's really revved up and fine-tuned. And so in order to make sure you're building the size of your engine, you need to be running at a heart rate and an effort level on most of your runs, especially those easy runs, that is in the zone where you're building aerobic capacity, where you're building the size of your engine. And so that's actually done at easier efforts, easier heart rates, slower paces. 
And that mafetone math I just gave you, that threshold, so 139 beats for, per minute for me is roughly the point at which I go from building the size of my engine below that threshold to fine-tuning the engine above that threshold. Ultimately, both things are important, but if you have to err on one side, you'd rather have a really big engine that's less fine-tuned than have a small engine that you've got revved to the max. So most people, yes, they need to slow down most of the time because that puts them in the right aerobic zone in order to build aerobic capacity, which is building the size of your engine, improving your body's ability to process oxygen to your working muscles, which is the limiting factor for most of us and how fast we can go. I want to straight up say that if anybody has heard me use that same engine analogy, I think I may have inadvertently absorbed it from one of Chris's shows. So that he is the originator of the big engine, easy running, hard running, fine tuning your engine analogy. So full credit to you uh, right here. Because uh, yeah, you're 100% correct in that. And where I think a lot of people struggle with the easy, when we tell people to run easy, is they are looking for something that is concrete. They're looking for a very specific heart rate. They're looking for a very specific pace zone. And especially on easy days, we're asking them to run by easy effort. And a lot of runners, especially newer runners, don't know what that's supposed to feel like. So we say, okay, use these proxies, use your heart rate, use through these guides instead. But when it comes to pacing yourself to dialing into different zones, effort is always going to be the thing that matters the most. For a new runner, or any runner, um, what can they do? How do they become more in tune with their body? What, what did they do to learn what different efforts actually feel like and pay attention to them? So first of all, just quick comment on that easy, easy proxy. One of the other ways I like to talk about it, which you probably do too, is conversational pace. If you can have a full conversation casually with another runner while running, then that probably means you're in a pretty good place from from an easy pace perspective. And actually, I want to say I had somebody ask about if I'm running by myself, how do I know if I'm running at <laughs> conversational pace? And I said, well, you can talk. To I you said, well, first talk. of all, it's not it's not literal, right? Like it's, yeah. but if you really want to know, you can talk to yourself. And then I had a bunch of people jump into my DMs and say, oh, I sing to myself there on my go. easy runs. That's brilliant. If you can sing while you're running, you're definitely in your easy zone. Exactly. Embrace that. That's uh, that's powerful. I've not heard the singing, but I love it. But yeah, but, but in terms of how do we think about getting better at this, I think first of all, you have to have the right mindset about it. And then there's some practical things that we can do. From a mindset standpoint, one, as I already talked about, you have to embrace this idea that it's really about listening to your body and learning how it should feel. And that means dialing into those internal cues. And for some of us who like music or other things, I think sometimes you got to do it without that. So you can really be focused on the senses and how your body feels, how your heart rate is, how your breathing is, what's your perceived effort level, how do your different muscles from head to toe feel as you're moving all of those things you need to be able to dial into. And so you have to, if you want to be on this journey, you have to embrace that idea that it's in many ways kind of like yoga or being you know, meditative. You have to listen to your body as much as anything else. But there's two other things that I like to talk about in terms of approaching it with the mind, right mindset. One is that this is a long-term journey without a destination. And, and that's scary for some people, but I'm, I've been doing this for 21 years and I still am getting better and learning and figuring it out. And yes, I'm better now than I was 21 years ago, but 
I can still go into a workout and screw it up and figure out something new and learn. And so it's a, a long-term process. And the related point is that perfection is not the goal. I use an analogy talking to a runner this week. It's kind of like tuning a guitar. The guitar is never going to be perfectly tuned all the time. It always going out of tune. And so you're always constantly working it and tuning it. And so, you know, you're not trying to necessarily ever be perfect. You're just trying to take your lessons as you go in the long-term journey so that ultimately you're moving in the right direction. You're getting better as you go. And so you want to embrace this as a journey without perfection as a destination where you're going to continually learn as long as you invest in the sport in this way. So that's sort of one side of it, the mindset side of it. And then the second part is, okay, well, how practically can we start to figure these things out? Listening to podcasts like this is one way because you start to internalize some of the lessons, but I've got some other ways. Uh, One thing I would say is that you do need to understand your limitations of your tools and learn how to effectively use your tools. Because I don't want someone to be a slave to a garment, but if they're going to use a garment, which is a great tool, then they need to be able to use it in the right ways. And so to me, a first step here is figuring out how to appropriately use your tools so that you can still listen to your body, but also get some data that helps you calibrate. And so for me with my Garmin, step one, or with any GPS device, is turn off the auto lap. Turn off the auto lap. It is useless to you. There is no, there is no purpose for the auto lap other than to just stroke your ego every mile on an easy run, which isn't useful either. So turn off the auto lap. Learn to use the lap function in a way that's more useful. And also learn what data screens you have and how to set those up in a way that's going to give you useful information. For me, I have a Garmin 245. It's going to look a little different for every watch, maybe for every different version of Garmin. But I set it up with two screens, one that has my total time, total distance, and instant pace, which by the way is pretty much worthless because it's fluctuating all over the place. And then I have the other screen which shows me lap distance, lap average pace, and lap time. Most of the time on my runs and especially in my workouts, I'm using that lap screen, those three data points on the lap in order to get the information I need because it's telling me the total time for the lap, total distance for lap if I need to know my intervals, and it's telling me my average pace for the lap, which is going to be more accurate over a given interval than is instant pace. So I have the tools. I have it set up in a way that's useful But then I don't look at it very often in a workout, in an interval. If I'm doing an 800, I might look at it at the 400 point just to get a checkpoint. But I'm not looking at my watch more than once per interval and once at the end of an interval as a calibration tool. So know the limitations and don't do the thing where you're constantly looking every 10 to 15 seconds. It's useless to you in those small increments. Instead, learn to feel. So then... You know, so then it's about once you have your tool set up, you can't be a slave to it. You want to make sure that you're not a slave to it. So again, check in on it. A few data points here and there, but not entirely the whole time. I also encourage athletes to do workouts where they don't actually look at it the entire workout periodically, where they maybe cover it with duct tape, track the data so you can look at it later. 
but don't actually use it in real time. That, that's a mind-blowing concept for some people, but a really powerful learning tool. But some other things that you can do is one of the things I preach just in general is this idea of, of running everything in progression, every workout in progression. And what that allows you to do is feel the effort as you go at different points. If I'm telling you to run six by 800 meters at your 10K pace, and you start at 5K pace, then your calibration for pace is going to be off from the beginning. But if you start at a pace that's maybe 10K plus five seconds or 10 seconds per mile, then that allows you to feel that effort and then have much more control over your ability to kind of gradually step down from there. Because once you put yourself in the red, it's almost impossible to recalibrate and sort of dial back. It ends up in that roller coaster kind of effect that you were talking about earlier. So do everything in progression and early in workouts, early in runs, err on the slow side so that you can feel out the difference as you progress and have control the entire time, which is really, really important. And then, you know, the other thing is at the end of your runs, go back and look at the data. That's when you can be a slave to the data. Go back and look at the data afterwards, then reflect on how the actual information fits with how you were feeling, and then take your lessons and recalibrate from there. So it's a feedback loop. It just isn't one that should be every 10 seconds on a workout or run. That is such fantastic advice because it's not going to be useful for us to say to somebody, well, just learn to feel. Don't look at your watch and just run by effort. We have these watches for a reason. We want to use them. But as you said, we need to learn how to use them appropriately and look at the data that matters and not look at the data or you know every five seconds because that's not going to be the accurate depiction of what's actually happening over the course of our run. Correct. The watch is wrong in those small intervals. It just is. And so your body's actually going to be better than the watch in those small chunks. I love that you brought up both turning off your auto lap and, and manually lapping because it's so much more accurate. It's so disconcerting to run around a track and have your watch be wrong. You're thinking, no, I just passed the 400 meter mark. What do you mean I haven't reached? For I, well, oh, there, <laughs> it go, there it goes. And somebody actually said, well, doesn't that mean, shouldn't you follow your watch? And I'm thinking, oh, so the track's wrong? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's always funny to me because I get that all the time from people. They said, but my, but my interval was back there in the middle of the straightaway. I'm like, no, you're on a measured course. And that's a great point because when you're on a track or when you're on any measured course, don't look at pace per mile. Use the splits from the lap. That's going to be more accurate because you're on a measured course. And if you look at your absolute time as an indicator, that's going to be better data in those circumstances. Because yes, if you're running circles around a lap, Garmin is really, really bad in particular. And will have you running across the infield on the corners and doing all sorts of crazy things. I believe the Coros watch has a, a track function that actually better maps the algorithm to the track. And so that I've not had experience with, but I've heard better experiences with calibrating a Coros watch to the, to the track than a Garmin. But either way, I would still ignore it. You're on a measured course, whether that's a track or a measured road loop that you might have. And so you can ignore the pace per mile it's telling you and just look at the time and split it when you hit your laps. 
yeah, technology has gotten good, but not that good. Not yet, <laughs> <Right>. at least. <laughs> right. And something else I'd also note, especially during the summer season or when the trees are in full leaf or if you live in a city or an area with a lot of bridges or overpasses or a rural area, your GPS might be even less accurate. I personally live in a neighborhood where the GPS coverage is terrible. And if you actually map the roads that I run, they're about a quarter mile off for every four miles that I run. So your watch is giving you one piece of information. It's not the entire picture. It's just part of the puzzle. Yeah. I find, you know, I run with a lot of the same people all the time. And it's funny because you also find that everybody's GPS watch is calibrated differently. So if we're doing an out and back course and everybody's asking, when are we going to hit the turnaround? We're all looking at our watches. We all have different measurements. So we have a rule within our group that we can only turn around when the last person's GPS watch hits the desired distance, <laughs> which me, which is silly, a silly rule, but it's our rule. And it means we're probably going longer than we should, but that's okay because, you know, more is some more is better when you're going easy. But um, but I find it funny because we might have five runners all with different readings on their watches on the exact same route running shoulder to shoulder. And that's just another example of how limiting it can be, especially in certain environments like you described. And of course, the natural extension of that is that all of your watches are going to be slowly showing slightly different paces, despite the fact that you are running together at the same pace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about... In all things running, you have to do it to get better at it. It's Somebody can't expect to go out and become an effort and pacing master overnight. This is an experience-based skill. You have to do it a lot to get better at understanding what your specific effort is and how to pace yourself as a runner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, that's part of the mindset is that this is a never-ending journey. And you're going to get better at it, but certainly you'll always be learning. And especially when you start to think about all the nuances of it. And for me, you know, I've started running more on trail in the last couple of years. And so that adds a whole other wrinkle too to the, to the equation of different terrain and different technical courses might have an impact on effort and pace in a way that's completely different than what it looks like on the roads. And so there's always a new a new you know, thing to learn, whether it be running in different conditions, as we've talked about before, whether it be running on different terrain, different surfaces, you know, how you should calibrate when you've slept well versus haven't slept well, as I talked about earlier, versus when you're higher stress versus lower stress. And so you're, there's always something to learn and you're never going to be perfect at it. But if you take little lessons each time, you will get better. And you'll see that trajectory over time, but it does take a concerted effort to really work on it and get better at it. But at the same time, don't beat yourself up because as I said, you're not going to, perfection's not the goal, just looking for progress and little, little baby steps, little lessons along the way. And that, those are the things you can hold on to as you progress through this journey. Before we move on to talk about race pacing and race strategy, I want to talk a bit about how running is hard. Like if we talk about easy running, a lot of especially newer runners, it's still running, right? So if they're expecting it to be a walk in the park, well, you're still going to be running in the park, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, right. And so, you know, I think that understanding when we talk about effort is a wonderful 
thing to be dialed into, but you have to have the expectations set in your body of what the effort is going to realistically feel like. And if you're newer and everything feels really hard, that's far different from somebody who's been running for decades and has a very, a vast range of possible efforts they could run. Yeah. But even, even for that new person, I always try to calibrate them in this way. If you think about walking and, you know, and you think about walking as having different effort levels, you know, most of us understand that there's a difference between a casual walk with your dog versus a brisk walk to wherever you're trying to go. So we understand that there, at at least with walking, that there's some range in there of perceived effort when you're walking. And we can all get to a place where we can comfortably walk without feeling like we're out of breath. And so to me, it's then about just sort of translating that mindset to moving the feet a little bit faster into a jog and then ultimately into a run. And, and, but the concepts aren't that different. So if you're struggling, if you feel like, if you feel like it's too hard, then walk, walk until you can get back under control with your breathing effort, your ability to have a conversation. And then from there, from that as your baseline, then start to move the feet ever so slightly faster into a jog. And then you can get to a place where it's suddenly more sustainable because it's not supposed to hurt. I think that's a part of the challenge with that new runner is they believe that it's going to suck. They think it has to be really hard and hurt for it to work. And what we're telling you is that that's actually not what you want to experience. And to me, as a run coach, there's no ego issues with walking. I mean, I will do it on an easy run. I have a few hills in my neighborhood that I like to run because they're scenic. There's actually a road called scenic in my neighborhood. that has got a beautiful views of, of Lake Austin. And I will go up that hill on an easy run. And some days I will walk up that hill because I need to keep my effort in the right place. And because it's a tough hill in order to get to the right zone, I walk that hill. And so there's nothing wrong with that. And if you need to start that way with walk run intervals in order to keep it in the right place, then that's okay. So that's what I would tell a new runner. For an experienced runner who might say, I can't go that slow. Like I hear that all the time too, which is a frust- another frustrating comment because as someone, you know, I've run and I'm, I'm not bragging, but I'm just giving you numbers to give you a reference point. I've run six minutes and 20 seconds for the marathon for 26.2 miles. I ran an easy run on Wednesday this week at 12 minute miles. So that's nearly a six minute difference in, from my marathon pace to my easy pace on that given day after that tough workout I described on Tuesday. And, and you really can't go too slow. And what I tell people that say they can't go that slow, I say, look, if you're inefficient, if it's uncomfortable for you to run at the right paces or efforts in order to get to the, the benefits you need of easy running, then that means there's something actually wrong with your form that's not manifesting until you slow down. Because when we run, we tend to be faster and more efficient. And so if you're inefficient at slower paces, at slower efforts, regardless of what that is relative to your other reference points, then you're somehow also having inefficiencies at faster paces that are just hiding themselves because you tend to be more efficient as a fast runner. And so 
embrace that concept of slowing down. If you can be efficient at all paces from a brisk walk to a very slight jog to the whole spectrum of paces after that, then you're going to be a better, faster runner in the long term. And you have to embrace it and set your ego aside. But your easy pace, if it's not at least a minute slower than your marathon pace as one reference point or a minute and a half slower than your half marathon pace, then you're you're going too fast. And you're fine-tuning a small engine instead of building a big one. And those reference points are just starting points. I always say, you know, when I'm giving a, an easy pace range, which is always prefaced by, it should feel easy. You should generally be in this heart rate zone. If you have to have a pace range, it's from here to here or slower. <laughs> exactly. It's never going to be faster. I'm never always, saying, oh, yeah. this is your easy pace <laughs> or faster. It's going to be from here to here or slower, depending on how yes. you feel that day. Exactly. So let's talk about the other end of the pacing spectrum, not about how to keep things easy, but in a race, race pacing, race strategy, how to do things that are hard and to hold hard paces appropriately for the longest amount of time until hopefully you cross that finish line. First off, I want to talk about the concept of banking time as a race strategy. And this is when people intentionally attempt to run the first part of their race faster than race pace and attempt to gain time so that they can run the second half slower. And I've heard some explanations about, well, I tend to slow down in the second half of my race anyway, so I should try to bank time in the beginning. And I'm thinking maybe you're slowing down because you're banking time. Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Banking time is not a good strategy, but I will say first, just as a baseline setting, any race that's 5k or shorter, there is actually science that supports a little bit of banking time. Pacing is still important. Being close to even splits is important, but the shorter races, there is some evidence to suggest. And if you look at world records in those races, that going a little faster at the beginning can actually have benefits. Anything longer than a 5k, the science as well as reality and experience points to the fact that it's better to start slower and work down and finish strong. That's And then that becomes even more true as the distance extends to the marathon. Negative splitting, running the second half faster than the first in a marathon is optimal pace strategy, which means you're banking not time at the beginning, but you're banking energy is the way I like to talk about it. You want to start conservatively, bank energy so that you can finish strong at the end. And a lot of people will tell me, well, it's not possible to finish fast in a marathon. It is possible if you execute a smart race plan and if you train in the right way. And that is how you find your optimal marathon time is by having a strategy that involves banking energy, not time, finishing faster than you start. And we talk about pacing a race, anything longer than a 5K. It can be challenging to describe a pacing strategy to somebody because we we generally want to run, we start a little bit under goal pace, assuming the conditions allow for us to run the goal pace we're aiming for. And then, you know, usually you kind of hang out in the middle and then you speed up at the end, whatever the distribution of that pacing strategy looks like over the distance. But your perceived effort is going to be very different at those paces as we go from the start to the finish of that race. For a marathon, your marathon pace 
you're going to feel great in the first mile. You're going to feel like you're floating. You're going to feel like your marathon pace is the easiest pace you've ever run. And so you might be tempted to increase the pace faster and get into trouble early, which can bite you in the butt later on. But we talk about uh, effort in a race, pacing ourselves in a race, our understanding of what effort should feel like at the beginning, middle and end of a race. Well, and we can use the marathon as a reference point just so we can describe the concepts. One thing I like to say with the marathon is that you should start slow and then slow down some more because every single sense in your body related to how fast you're running is wrong in the first mile of a marathon, especially a big marathon where there might be a lot of other people out there with you because you have all the nerves, anxiety, adrenaline pumping yourself plus you have all the people out there that you're following that will probably also be going out too fast and so there's there's just hordes of temptation out there to run faster than you should at the beginning of a marathon and i also like to say if you're not being passed at the beginning of a marathon then you're not going slow enough because everybody else will be making the mistake of going too fast. And if you can stay in the right zone, you should be getting passed by them so that you can pass them later when it counts. So you have to, so that's one challenge with, with racing is that even though you may have learned all these things, these, these, uh, this ability to calibrate internally and really gauge your pace and effort, all of those things kind of become wrong at the beginning of a big race because you have all that adrenaline pumping. And so, so I like to, in my own head, when I'm doing this sort of start at an effort that feels right and then back off even more because I know that because of the adrenaline pumping and all the other energy associated with a race start, I'm probably going to skew wrong in all of those feelings and calibration points that we've talked about before. And so therefore I need to correct myself by backing off a little bit more. And then you get your data point at that first mile, which helps you adjust. But this takes practice. Being able to do a race and not start too fast takes practice that I think can only be learned by racing. And so I like to advise people to do what I call training races, where you have a no stakes opportunity, no or low stakes opportunity without expectations to just simply practice executing a race plan maybe even one that's more conservative than you will on race day so that you can learn these elements of calibrating what it feels like on race day versus what it feels like in training. And so with those early miles, it's all about starting slow and then making it feel even easier, slow down some more. And in a marathon, I typically advise people to start at least 30 seconds per mile slower than their target pace for that race. Obviously, it will depend on the train, the weather, all these other elements, but for the most part, you want to start at least 30 seconds slower because the other thing you have to remember is that your body in those moments, it's like a car going back to the car analogy. It's, it's getting the, the fuel pumping, the, the unleaded going through the, the veins of the car, all the cylinders turning, the oil moving through, the, all the different pieces of the engine are starting to go to work. And that costs more energy in the startup mode than it will once you reach equilibrium later on. And so while it feels good and feels easy because the adrenaline is pumping, you're actually burning more energy in those early miles, even at slower paces, because you're getting the engine going and engine revved up. 
And then once you settle into an equilibrium, then actually everything kind of drops and you start to get into a lower burn energy place, even if you're at faster paces. So I tell people to start at least 30 seconds slow in a marathon in the first mile, work down from there gradually over three or four miles to your target pace, hold that until typically 21 or 22, and then try to finish. And if you've done it all right in training and executed well on race day, there will be some left at the end. They describe the marathon. It's a 20 mile warm up and a 10 K race at the end for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then at the end, look, marathon pace won't feel good. As you alluded, effort is going to go exponentially up. But by that point, you know, you've shortened the race from a 26 mile race to a six mile race or a four mile race. And that's when you can really start to put all of your energy out, all that energy you saved early. That's when you can start to expend it late in order to hold on and even get faster at the end. Something I always advise talking about race strategy, especially in those middle miles where you're holding the same pace, I always say, and it's going to feel increasingly harder as the miles go by. The pace is going to be the same. Your effort is going to increase just a little bit. It's not going to be, because it'd be great if we could just settle into the same effort and the same pace. But the way that our bodies work, something has to give. Either we keep it the same effort, especially harder efforts, and we have to decrease our pace as the miles go on, or we keep the same pace and our effort increases. Anything longer, more than an easy run, basically, when we're talking about those race paces. Yeah, and it may even evolve within the run for whatever reason from mile to mile. I remember a marathon in 2018 that I did in Houston, flat course, completely flat course, good weather that day. Well, we hit this turnaround and suddenly we had wind in our face, you know, from mile 13 to 14, right before, you know, right before we hit the turn, I felt great. Everything was cruising along, you know, everything was perfect. I was dreaming of big PRs. And then I hit the turnaround, went back into the wind and suddenly it was like, whoa, everything got hard for about a mile until we turned again. And then the wind changed and suddenly I was back in rhythm. So, you know, you might even find that within a race itself from mile to mile, you can have some changes in how it feels. And something in a race, it can feel like it is the hardest pace you've ever held. It is the hardest effort you've ever given. And then you cross the finish line and you, you're you not dead. <laughs> you can walk. You might even jog a little bit. Um, that has to do, I don't know if we have time to get into this whole discussion, this topic of how your body governs and controls your ability to go all out, how your body subconsciously paces you from, you know, tipping over the red line into danger zone of when your body would be in danger. But our brains are really the limiters when it comes to how much effort we think we can give over any specific distance. Very often we will cross a finish line and think, oh gosh, you know, I think I I could have given more. And that's just because our bodies are trying to keep us alive, but sometimes we want to run faster than that. Yeah. Yes. And there's different theories on this in terms of, is there some sort of central governor that's literally limiting what you can do? Just like a car engine has governors on it sometimes to keep you from running or to keep you from driving certain speeds. So there's that perspective that it's basically a survival mechanism to prevent you from doing anything dangerous. And then there are other perspectives on it that there isn't some central governor, but rather basically the conditions within your body are sort of giving you cues that may or may not be accurate at a given time. If you want to read about it, I highly recommend Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure, 
which goes into all the science in in depth thought process about you know how the science of enduring and ability to actually push beyond perceived limits. So that's a really good book if you want to check it out. But you but you're right. It's crazy how in in just a few steps you can go from feeling like you're going to die to suddenly being, you know, happy and elated again because you got your time goal and and that's to me the the one of the beautiful things of the sport is that we put ourselves through these challenges in races knowing that at any moment we could stop and it would all be fine. <laughs> and yet we still strive to the finish line and go to new places and deeper places because there's something to find in that journey. And, and that's, that's where the magic is. That's where the good stuff is, is going to your perceived limits and seeing what happens. And the very cool thing about this is that the first time that you find a limit and push past it and find there's something more there it is like finding Narnia behind the wardrobe. It is an entire new world. And I very clearly remember the first time this happened to me. It was in a workout. It changed everything for me. As soon as you realize that the thing you thought was limiting you, you have more to give beyond that. Just push a little bit past and see what's there. That is when things really start to change. Yeah, it's the, it's the magical moments of self-discovery, which you know, he's about the running in one sense because you're teaching yourself what you can do physically that becomes powerful. But, but I find, and the reason why I really coach is because you also then break mental barriers that extend well beyond the running to other parts of your life, to career, to relationships, to everything else you might face that might be hard. And that's where the, as I said, that's where the real magic is. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I I feel like we could have kept going on a bunch of different directions here. But to recap, I feel like to be very clear, you can run slower than you think you can. You can also run faster than you think <laughs> you can. And you just have to figure out which which is the right day to do which of those things. <laughs> That's right. Both matter, but going easy matters more because you want that big engine. And I'll again, hammer home on the experience is what allows you to accurately maintain consistent pace. I'll never forget the first time I read Dina Castor's memoir, Let Your Mind Run, which is another fantastic book. She was talking about her build up to one of her marathons and she was out on a training run. I think it was like a goal pace run. And she realized the pace she was running was too hot. So she asked her training partner to slow the pace down. And they went from something like 510 to 514 per mile, right? Which like, for me, that is like, in my dreams, what I run a mile at that pace. But for her, her sense of effort and perceived effort and how in tune she was with her body, she understood the difference between that very slight pace adjustment and knew that one was a little bit too hot and the other was just on the right side of where she wanted to be. We should all aspire to be as in tune with our perceived effort and pacing as Dina Castor is. Of course, she's Dina Castor for a reason. (laughs) Yes, goals. We all can aspire to be her in so many ways. So Chris, tell us where we can find you a couple different places. You have several podcasts. You are a coach. Tell us about that. Yes. So my home base is here in Austin, Texas. I'm co-owner of Rogue Running, which is a running training business. We have about 800 to 900 athletes at a given time in our programming across 40 plus coaches. And it's all group-based training, which we do in person in Austin, Dallas, and New York City. And we also have some virtual programs that we do 
actually be a podcast as our as our medium for that to coach athletes really all over the world. I've actually coached athletes in like five of the seven continents through that virtual platform, which is pretty fun and cool as well. And so if you want to check that out, you can go to roguerunning.com. I also, as a part of that business, have a podcast called Running Rogue that really is all about two things. One, educating people on coaching topics, just like we're talking about today. And the second is I also like to build fans of the sport. So I sprinkle in fun, inspiring stories from the professional running ranks to try to relate it to those of us that are just everyday runners. And so you'll hear all of that on my podcast. It's 240, <clears throat> 240 episodes now. So a few I've done a few episodes since December 2016. And you can find find that, excuse me, wherever podcasts are distributed. And then I have a second podcast called the Clean Sport Collective Podcast that I co-host with Kara Goucher and Shannon Burnett. And we talk about clean sport topics and mostly interview athletes that are and that we believe are clean, that pledge to be clean, signing the Clean Sport Collective pledge. And they're not just runners. Sometimes we get swimmers and and ski athletes, and we have had a host of other athletes on there, but mostly runners. And so just a good place to hear inspiring stories of professional runners that are doing it the right way so that when you go and cheer, you know who to cheer for. And I feel like that topic is... Uh... This year, specifically heading into the Olympics with the things that we've heard, the things that have been uh, alleged in the U.S. track and field Olympic trials with uh, Shelby Houlihan and all of that. I know that I immediately listened to your podcast episode on the Running Rogue podcast about that. And uh, yeah, because you're right. I mean, if I wanted to go see, you know people who were on steroids, I'd go watch a bunch of bodybuilding competitions. And I want to believe that the the people that I'm cheering for, the heroes that I see cross the finish line, I want to believe that what I'm seeing is real. Yeah, we all do because it's beautiful sport in its purest forms. And yet there is always that doubt in the back of your mind. And so we're trying to eliminate some of those doubts, both by educating people on the things they can look for if they really know and understand the the information behind doping and anti-doping, but then also, of course, just present to you athletes that we believe in, that we hope you will also believe in and follow, which is especially important as, as we head to the Olympics this summer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So everything that Chris has mentioned, I'm going to link in the show notes. You can easily find him and listen to his excellent podcast. Check out his run training business, which I, I use so many runners. That's so fantastic that you're reaching so many people. Which two continents are you missing? Who do we need to get you? <laughs> we're missing Africa and Antarctica, you know, I mean, well, Antarctica, we've got kind of the a... other ones covered <laughs> at this point. So yeah, Antarctica will be tough, but I'm, I'm thinking we could get Africa at some point. Maybe you'll give, develop a, an East African training camp. <laughs> we, do have, we do have another business called Rogue Expeditions, which is a running travel business where we take runners to Kenya and they they actually go through E10 where all of the East African Kenyan marathoners train. And so you can travel with us there as well as you can travel with us to other fun places like Morocco and South Africa and Slovenia, Croatia. That business has been on hiatus for a year, but we're actually starting trips up again this summer going to Iceland, which will be our first running trip to Iceland this summer. So you can also check that out at roguexpeditions.com. 
That is very cool. I think I might have to go check that out right now. Well, Chris, thank you so much. This was an absolute blast. And I I appreciate your time. You are a wealth of knowledge. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you having me on. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at Running Explained or at my website, runningexplained.co. If you have a question you'd like to have answered, you can submit it in my stories every Monday or email me at elizabeth at runningexplained.co. That's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H at runningexplained.co. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.